All right. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Our text this morning is Psalm 126, verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day of rest, this day of repentance, of renewal. We thank you for calling us out of the world and making us new in your Son. We pray, Father, that now in our, you comfort us in our need, that you feed us, that you heal us, that you bind us up, and that you give us the strength to go into the world and with hearts full pour ourselves out for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you empty? Are you tired or dried up from worry, from worship, from feasting, from fear? We empty ourselves as we live. We give our tears, we give our strength, our voices, our labor to prayer and repentance, to raising our children and serving our communities, to doing our jobs and enjoying ourselves. But doesn't it seem that we so easily run out of energy? We give of ourselves and we feel used up. And yet there is so much left for us to do. There's so much left to say, so many people still in need, so much injustice in the world, so many meals to make and projects to start and projects to finish. God overwhelms us, doesn't he, with an abundant life, an abundant life. But as the wave dissipates and washes away our days, as we give ourselves to our families and our jobs and our ministries, we feel empty. We feel dried out. I know this is how I feel. I pray for some situation. I labor. I cry out to the Lord with a voice full of his love and hope that he has filled me with. I pray and I work in waiting on his promises. And sometimes... Sometimes, before the situation even comes close to resolution, there's some fresh worry, some new need, more sin, unmet wants, or even, bewilderingly enough, some fruit to enjoy in the midst of my worry. And it all feels like new seed to plant in fields I've already crossed back and forth time and time and time and time again. This is exactly what Psalm 126 is all about. We need to have high expectations of God's grace and see it for the wonder that it is. Not just in the big things, but in the everyday things. And we need to know how that wonder works. What the filling up is for. And we need to know, um, and if we search scriptures, the scriptures, we find, in fact, that we are filled up to pour ourselves out like a drink offering. So this Lord's Day, my message is this. God fills us like a stream to irrigate the world, to reap a harvest of joy. First, we have to believe with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength that God does fill us up like a stream. In verses 1 through 3 that we covered last week, the psalmist remembers the restoration of fortunes in Israel that followed a difficult time after a time of flourishing. And here in verse 4, he is crying out again, asking for restoration. It appears to me that the author thinks life is cyclical, that life isn't static. 
Indeed, in, for, in verse 4, he asked God to restore Israel's fortunes like the streams of the Negeb. And now this is significant for a couple of reasons. First off, the Negeb is a re- region of the southern half of the Promised Land, half of what is in modern-day Israel. The word Negeb comes from a root word in Hebrew, which means to dry out or be, or be parched, to be dry or be parched. That's what the word means. So the area is called the Negeb because, obviously, it's a very dry, arid place. There are few springs. The streams there aren't like streams here in Washington State, which are constantly fed by snowmelt or glaciers. The streams of the Negeb literally, every year, dry up completely. They become empty. The water that fills them comes from one place and only one place, rain. The streams of the Negeb are filled with water that descends from the heavens. The Israelites are like those streams because their source of provision comes from one place, the heavens. Secondly, streams are not static. They flow out. They dissipate. They pour forth their waters unlike ponds or lakes. Furthermore, the Negeb experiences yearly droughts, seasonal drought, scorching heat, relentless sun. They dry out due to extreme circumstances. So this is all a metaphor for the Israelites because they go through periods of blessing and emptiness from which they need restoration, as it it says in verse 1 and verse 4 of Psalm 126. The streams of the Negeb are fed from heaven. They flow out to other lands and experience difficult circumstances that dry them out and leave them needing renewal and restoration. This is a wonderful metaphor for the Christian life. It's the reason the psalmist is using it um, as a metaphor, because it's perfect. It's perfect for the Christian life. We are like streams of water in dry and arid land that needs constant provision and renewal from heaven. That's what we are like. Now, why am I making the Christian life sound so hard? What do I mean that the rivers dry up completely? How does that fit into the metaphor I'm using? As I've said before, our trajectory is always upward, though by no means a straight line. If we are spending ourselves, if we are loving God with our whole mind, body, and soul, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, if we are truly living this way, the way that God commands us to live, we will be emptied. We will spend ourselves in daily worship of God and service to one another. Like the streams of the Negeb, we will be parched. We will be emptied. We'll need new outpourings of God's provision and blessing. Sabbaths are a weekly event because we need to rest in Christ that frequently. We are given Bibles to read whenever and wherever we are because we need to renew our faith that often. We are told to pray, asking for our daily bread, because we need daily bread to live how God has called us, saved us, to live. We need the refreshing rain from heaven constantly. If we needed the torrent of blessing to descend in Jesus Christ to save us in the first place, where else are we going to turn in our daily need? Galatians 4.9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? We know what St. Peter knew. 
In John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69. I love this. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you not go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. St. Peter knows it. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? When the car gets low on gas, we don't abandon it on the side of the road, hopefully. We don't drive to the Apple store. We go to the gas station. When the power goes out due to storms, we don't burn the house down. We don't pack up and leave. We don't call waste management. When our plumbing breaks and we don't go to the zoo and talk to the giraffes. When our hearts are empty, when our will is weak, when our faith is low, when we go, we go to the only one who can do anything about it and who has, in fact, promised to do something about it. We are like the streams of the Negev. We turn to heaven. Our Lord pours out blessing upon blessing on those who come to him. He never fails. He's always there. He's always ready. Look up to the throne of heaven when you are dry and used up. Now, see, this is funny. The metaphor actually breaks down. God's love and his promises are not seasonal like the rain in the Negev. God's promises are yours in Christ today, this hour. Every day, every hour. Christ is ready to hear you. He's ready to fill you. He's ready to relieve you, to receive you, to give you rest, to fill you up. Cry out. Reach out. And you will find that Christ has already gripping you in the palm of his hand. The next step to understand is that you are a stream like the Negeb filled by God to irrigate the world. The dew of heaven is what the world needs. It's what the world needs. And we are the streams carved into the families, cultures, and communities of this world to bring the dew of heaven to dry and wasted places. The theme of moving water, streams filled from heaven and flowing outward, continues on all the way through the psalm. In verse 5, it says, Those who sow in tears... In verse 6, it says, he who gives out weeping, he who goes out weeping, bearing. So here we have tears, and we have weeping, and we have labor. Labor produces sweat. This whole idea of water that flows outward from verse 4 continues on. You have streams filled from heaven that are flowing, and now you have people going around leaking water all over the place. I mean, th there's, there's a reason he's putting these things together. In caring and carrying, in emotional and physical involvement in the world, in weeping and working, what is poured into us from heaven is expended outwards. What's poured into us flows outward just like the streams of the Negev. Now let's clear something up that's very important. What are the nature of these tears? Is this like Dean's fantastic sermon a few weeks ago where it says those who mourn and will be comforted, and to them belong the kingdom of heaven. You know, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about that. But I think it's significant here that he doesn't say the nature of the tears. He just says tears and weeping. The water in verse 3 that Israel tasted and longs to taste again is from heaven, 
And so that clues us in to where this water that people are weeping and sweating out is coming from. What he's talking about here is not sorrow. He's talking about much more than that. These are heavenly tears. Tears that stem from our knowledge of God and his relationship with us. These are tears of hope. Tears that know the goodness of the Lord and the badness of fallen man. Tears of compassion, of holy sorrow. Tears of joy, of extreme sanctified emotion. Not tears of hopelessness. Not tears of sadness or postmodern despair that is all around us. These are tears in motion, tears in labor. If you think about it, we are told to love God with our heart, our soul, our body, and our strength, with our whole self. We are to love God with a passion that consumes us. We tend to leave passion out of conversations as modern Christians. We tend to leave it in the bedroom, as if it's merely sexual. But if you look up the word passion, actually, it has two definitions. A strong and barely controllable emotion and the suffering and death of Jesus. The week that he died, the week leading up to Easter, is called the Passion Week. Everything that he goes through in the last week of his life is called Christ's Passion. It's full of tears, isn't it? He goes on the mountain and weeps to God. He, pray, he, he cries in, in, in prayer. He cries over Jerusalem when he sees it. He cries on the cross. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of intensity. There's a lot of emotion. This is our standard. This is what they're talking about in Psalm 126. They're not talking about sitting down, putting ash on your head, and just weeping uncontrollably because you you have nothing in you to give. They're talking about tears that come from intense emotion, intense involvement in the things of this world. Think of any emotional reaction you can have. Think throughout your life. Any emotion, joy, relief, humor, happiness, remorse that leads to repentance, thankfulness, terror. Every emotion taken to its limit results in tears. Tears are, in fact, the result of any intense emotion. It's not just for the sad and for the hopeless. We have all laughed so hard we've cried, right? We've all experienced that. Think about it. You're laughing so hard, you're weeping. I've been at weddings, baptisms, People are always crying. Why is that? Are they crying because they're terribly sad? No, because they're very emotional. It's intense. It's intense to go to a baptism. It's intense to go to a wedding. We are called to serve God with passion, with our whole selves. With intense in motion, with intense in motion in all things. Okay? We are called to be intense in mourning to express ourselves in intense joy, intense love, intense repentance, intense dying to ourselves, and intense living for Christ. So in tears. So with passion. Work with a sense of wonder. What I'm talking about is an emotional and not just an intellectual engagement with what God sets before us. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. Working together, working see, together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we command ourselves, commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to little children. Widen your hearts also. God has graciously filled your hearts. And now I exhort you to open your hearts and pour yourself into the good works that God has ordained for you to do. Pour yourself into the lives of your children, into one another, into the needy, and into the broken. Open your hearts and let the torrent that has flooded you flood your toil. We irrigate the world by laboring with holy tears, with tears of passion. And so, Mike, are you advocating a weepy, overly emotional, and sentimental faith? No. No, no. Intense emotion, emotional engagement that understands the needs of the world, the abundance of God's grace, and the laboring in the Lord that we are called to is something foreign to our Stoic age. We need an enemy bigger than our apathy, a faith bigger than our comfort zone, compassion for every situation. We need to be all things to all men. We need a heart, soul, mind, and strength engagement in Christ that causes us to laugh until we cry, sing until we lose our voice, that mourns with the downtrodden until our tear ducts are empty. We need to labor with care over every seed we lay in the ground. We need to overrun our banks. We are far too timid. We are alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ. And his life is a life that cannot be contained by death or by anything else. It breaks forth and it overcomes. It overwhelms and it floods. And we are full of that kind of life. We are far too timid. We need to shed our dour, puritanical culture as Christians and invest in this world with our entire selves for the love of God's glory. The streams of the Nedjeb fill very quickly once the rain comes, and they overflow their banks to fill an arid land with luscious and thriving life. This is the way it's always been there. It still occurs to this day. 
The rain comes. It's very fertile soil. All it needs is water. And once the water hits, the place explodes in luscious life. That draw herdsmen and, and livestock from all over the region come to feast there. Feast there. These very skinny cows come from a great distance and get very fat, feasting on the water that's poured out of the Negev. And this is exactly what this psalm is all about. If you remember from last week in verse 2, God overwhelms us with dreamlike deliverance, and we are filled with laughter and song that sets the world talking about what we're doing. God fills us with a life that shouldn't be contained, that shouldn't be limited. It should burst forth in song and in laughter, in provision and intense emotion, with joy, thanksgiving, and love that makes a loud clamor, that is vivid and vibrant. It's a very superficial, shallow, minute rice, McStarbucks world that we live in. The people in your life are used to a very shallow culture, a disengaged, ice cream relationships where people are lonelier and more disconnected than ever, and yet they're connected all the time. It's amazing. We carry around everyone we know on Facebook in our pocket, and yet we're so lonely. The world is a lonely place. We attract people to the life in God only when we dis- display that life in God vibrantly with a compassion that reaches across socioeconomic boundaries, that delights in the welfare of others, that gives, that's generous and hospitable, that is selfless and is interested in how others are doing. We offer a life that pours itself out unto death for the glory of the Lord. That's who we're representing. That's the life that's filled us, a life that pours itself out unto death. Let's, um, let's consider some examples from Scripture of what I'm talking about. My favorite chapter in the Bible, John chapter 11. Christ comes to the grave of Lazarus. It's too long to read. I'll just paraphrase it here. He comes. He knows that Lazarus is dead. He knows what he's about to do. And yet he sees the mourners weeping and wailing outside of the tomb. He looks into the face of Lazarus' sisters, and Jesus stands there and cries. He weeps. Everyone standing by says, look, look how much he loved him. The irony here is Jesus is about to raise him from the dead. Jesus is about to see Lazarus' face again, hear his voice. And yet he's so invested in his friend's life that he sees the clamor everyone's making around him, and he can't help but be overwhelmed. He's about to raise him from the dead, and he still weeps because death has taken his friend. He's so invested in Lazarus. This is the God through whom all things are made, and he cares about one person this much. In Acts 20, verse 31, St. Paul says, For three years he preached and exhorted his hearers with tears. Now, is it because the news he brought was so sad? Or was it because of the passion he had for the word of God and how it delivered people from their sin? The word of God was something so intense to him that he loved so much that he proclaimed so intensely that he wept for three years over it. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, St. Paul says he wrote 1 Corinthians with tears stemming from his love for them. 
if you go back and you read 1 Corinthians, there are some very harsh things said there. He has an intense passion for the glory of God, for the goodness of God, and he loves the Corinthians enough to write to them, to tell them what they need to hear, and as he's doing it, he loves them so much, he's weeping over it. This is not a timid man. Jesus was not a timid man. If you read the Psalms, you read the words of David who was passionate about God. And the Psalms are full of tears of worship and tears of repentance, tears of prayer and supplication, tears of love, tears of remorse, and tears of hope and expectation. David was a man after God's own heart, and his passion was expressed in holy tears. God has overwhelmed you with grace. He has defeated you with grace. He has poured his life into you. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Colossians 2.9-10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. So open your heart. Open your heart. Don't be stingy with what God has so freely given you. Pray with intense emotion. Serve with intense emotion. Sing with intense emotion. Feast with intense emotion. Mourn over sin and sorrow with intense emotion. Don't be afraid to be empty. We are like streams of the Nejeb, and God will continue to fill you, walk with you, overwhelm you with his love and grace. Open your heart. C.S. Lewis said this, And as to God, we must remember that the soul is but a hollow which God fills. Its union with God is, almost by definition, a continual self-abandonment, an opening, an unveiling, a surrender of itself. A blessed spirit is a mold, ever more and more patient of the bright metal poured into it, a body ever more completely uncovered to the meridian blaze of the spiritual sun. Open your heart to be filled from heaven like a stream of the Negev. Open your heart to pour forth the torrent and irrigate the world. Sow in tears. Exhibit a a true and personal care, an intense emotion with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your body. Empty yourself with passion. Labor and toil, love and serve, with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. That is what the world needs. But this is certainly not all to be said. We sow in tears, we labor in weeping, and God reaps a harvest of joy. Psalm 126, 4 through 6. I'll read it again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126 demonstrates the two important experiences of every Christian. In verses 1 through 3, Israel is blessed with the unexpected fulfillment of God's promise to work all things out for the good of those who love him. Right? They are overwhelmed. The dreamlike salvation of the Lord fills them with laughter and song. In verse 4 through 6, the people of God are still laboring in hope, passionately toiling in the expectation that God would vindicate them. And we experience both. We experience both things. The Christian life consists of promises fulfilled and promises to be fulfilled. Christ came and justified us by his death and resurrection, but he is still sanctifying us, and he will glorify us on the day of resurrection. 
we are in a, what they call theologically an already not yet state. All that is Christ is ours. And that is a process that we're in. Promises fulfilled, promises yet to be fulfilled. What is absolutely true, though, without a doubt, is that whether we see the fruit of our labor now or we die still wondering how things are going to work out, we know without a doubt that in this life or the next, in Christ, our labor is not in vain and our tears are not meaningless. We may sow in tears. Others may come along after and continue to water. Others may come along and weed. But the field in which we work, the field in which we labor, will not only produce by the love of God, it will be a harvest of joy. In Christ, our labor and tears are the sowing of a harvest that in Christ will be unimaginable joy. Now, to illustrate both, both examples, both, both experiences that Christians deal with, think about people that you know that are ill, that you've prayed for. Think of someone you know that had a terminal illness, and you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal them. And sometimes he doesn't. For whatever reason that we don't understand, he calls them home. And our hope is, a, is that we will see them again on the other side, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I go to funerals since I became a Christian very differently than I did before. I stayed away from funerals. Because if you never think you're going to see a person again, it is truly overwhelmingly, despairingly bad. But no matter what people go through, as sorrowful as it is to see someone go away from us, it's a different kind of sorrow when we know we're going to see them again. We labor in, in prayer now for someone, and we don't always know how it's going to work out. But I was overcome recently by a friend who had a terminal illness who we didn't know how it was going to go. And it got very dark at different times, and they were healed. And recently, I was standing there talking to them, and they were holding another friend's newborn baby, drinking wine, enjoying themselves. And I thought, <laughs> it's not always terminal illness, though. You pray for decades over an illness, over a thorn in the flesh, and the illness remains. The thorn remains. The circumstances continue to defy your understanding. My, my poor sweet grandmother went in the ground and never, never saw the labor of all her. How are you going to deal with this? without the hope of renewal and restoration that is going to come on the last day. I don't know how people do it. It's sad. It's sad for people out there with no hope who actually think this is all there is. But even in the desert, God does not leave us without rocks that burst open with water or bread that falls from heaven to sustain us. No matter what our eyes see, no matter what our eyes see or any of our other senses perceive in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, our hope is in an empty manger, in an empty tomb, and the fullness of Christ poured into our hearts by the Spirit of God. That's our hope. And what, what other hope could possibly sustain us like that? 
Sometimes our situation is like that of the Israelites in Egypt crying out to God, and then God shows up and delivers with dreamlike power and overwhelming grace. We've all experienced that. Sometimes we are like David, counting out five smooth stones, taking the time, laboring, caring over each one. Is this good enough? Is this good enough? And then all God needs is one to slay the giant. But sometimes our toil is like child-rearing. Child-bearing, I should say. (laughs) Think of the uncertainty, the fear, the care, the tears of pain and exertion, all followed by joy inconceivable. Christ uses the example in John chapter 16. He says, For you, your labor is like a woman giving birth to a child. There is sorrow, there is uncertainty, there is fear, and at the end, it is all overcome by the joy of a life. And so here we all are laboring away, full of uncertainty, full of hope. And what we get in the end is a life that doesn't die, a life that doesn't end. You may labor for years and see no fruit, no resolution, or you may see your toil generate fruit. God's ways are mysterious and hard to discern for creatures marred by the fall. We see the fruit sometimes and sometimes we don't. But this is the promise I want you to receive today and dwell on this week. Whether in this life or the next, your tears will never be wasted. Your labor is never in vain. Thomas Watson wrote of this psalm, Psalm 126, Here is sweet fruit from a bitter stock. Christ caused the earthen vessels to be filled with water and then turned the water into wine. So in the eye, the earthen vessel, hath been filled with water brimful, then Christ will turn the water of tears into the wine of joy. We are like the streams of the Negev. We are filled from the heavens. We are to carry all we receive in Christ into the world. We are called to lay down our lives, pour ourselves out, and the purpose of this selflessness is a harvest of joy. Weep in repentance. Weep in prayers. Strain and stretch yourself, giving to your spouse and your children and your loved ones, to the needy and to one another. Empty yourself. It's toil and work that produces a glorious fruit when God in his wisdom sets his hand to the harvest. Everything we sow, all the tears with which we water the seed, all of it lies in the hands of a gracious God. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things, work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And of course, the masterpiece. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's hard to believe here under the sun. On earth, we can't get our minds all the way around what God is doing. Our hope, though, is predicated on what God has done. That's the point of Psalm 126. We have been overwhelmed by God's grace, and so we submit our toil and tears to God so that he can bring from them a harvest of joy. Psalm 1611, you make it known to me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have been filled from God, and as we toil and feel empty, 
So um, we have to return to the fount from which all blessings flow. We look to heaven for what we lack, for strength that's greater than our weakness, for understanding that's greater than our feeble minds, for a hope that's greater than what we can see with our eyes. We look to heaven because we have never been disappointed in God's provision. We've never been disappointed in his overwhelming grace. St. Peter is a man who knew God's overwhelming grace, and he knew where his strength came from. He toiled with passion. He labored with weeping. And his statement in Philippians 1, verses 6 through 11, summarizes what I've been saying today perfectly. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 6 through 11. And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We are in need, aren't we? We're all in need. And since help has always come from the heavens and God has begun a work in us, we turn to him to finish his work, to fill us up, to bring to fruition, to fulfill the promises that we have already begun, have already begun to taste in Jesus Christ. We all have things that cause us tears, that require passionate engagement, difficult labor, and overwhelming toil, don't we? We all do. In our need that seems too great for us, we turn to the God who overwhelms our needs in the wildest and most unexpected ways. When we need a wonderful miracle, where else are we going to turn but to the worker of wonder? When we need help in the mundane and the day-to-day, we turn to the one who came in the flesh, who took on the mundane and the day-to-day in humility to walk among us. We are parched and dry, and there is work too great for us. And so let us turn to heaven like the streams of the Nejeb to be filled again. And let us overflow our banks and irrigate this needy world with a passion for God's glory. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us in Christ, for all the joy and the goodness and the grace and the hardship that you have given us that stretches our faith, that gives us an opportunity to express and believe in you. We pray, Father, we are tired. We are at times empty. Give us a passion for your glory. Give us a passion for everything that comes to us in Christ. Let us turn our eyes and our hearts and our hands to heaven to be filled. And let us pour ourselves out, for we know that there are those in this world needier than us. Let us be like the streams of the Negev, overflowing 
with abundant and vivid life. Let us not despair, Lord, but let us passionately seek the glory of you, the glory of Christ who has come and is ours forevermore. Amen.